Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shri and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Adriel. Uh, just got back from a great uh, hike with you and 10 other founders. So I feel like you know, I've achieved my cardio and now we're going to do a listener Q&A. So a lot of uh, Adriel and Jeremy time. Adriel, what do you have for me today? Yeah, so we have a bunch of listener questions and answers. I think, you know, this listener's profile, he has been a founder, but also has very deep operating experience in consumer tech, gaming especially, and worked for a whole bunch of leading gaming companies, both in the US and also in Southeast Asia. And this listener is now thinking about a potential transition into VC and has a bunch of questions around that. So the first question is really around, you know, how do you leverage your founder operator experience to become a VC? And I think that's something you probably uh, have firsthand experience with as, you know, a two-time founder. So I think the good news is that, you know, in general, there are two paths to VC, right? One is on the investing route and the other one is being a founder and operator experience. And the reason why both end up being relevant is that at the end of the day, the goal is to do three things, right? One is to be able to source deals. The second one is to decide on which deals are most likely to be high performance and likely to become unicorn companies. And the third, of course, is to help and add value, right? Which is to support these founders. So those two paths, being a former founder and operator means that to some extent, you have that relevant network of other founders or operators that are there. Uh, you are, have some domain experience in hopefully a high growth area. And also you have the empathy with the founder and operator about what it takes to build a company. And so that comes across in the way that you source, in a way that you decide, and also in how you help them, you know, kind of get to the next stage. So there is relevance uh, because you're in tech and you're in a geography, you have a network. That being said, because you have founder and operator experience, you know, what is still unclear, of course, is that it's one thing to have a network and understand and have empathy. But the question then is, can you still do the fundamental work that's about sourcing deals, deciding on them and adding value? So what needs to be done is that you have to demonstrate that conversion of your current assets and experience uh, to what looks relevant to the fund. And so that can come across in a couple of ways I've seen. Uh, I think, first of all, what we often see is that many founders perhaps have started by either angel investing or running syndicates in a way to show that they have demonstrated network, but also ability to source and add value um, by actually doing deals, right? With their own personal cash or with the capital of their friends. The second that you can see is that perhaps these folks are writing memos that are public to the public. So they're like doing some deep thinking about the space, the domain, et cetera. And so they do public open access memos and they generate an audience, but most importantly, they demonstrate that deeper order thinking that VCs do value. Um, so thirdly, of course, is, you know, 
you see a lot of founders are acting as venture partners or entrepreneurs in residence. So they're kind of like attached to funds or syndicates uh, and are really demonstrating that they can work and interface and be helpful to VCs either through phone calls or WhatsApp messages. So they're demonstrating they have that ability to work closely as part of the team. So those are the, you know, fundamental question is you have a great asset with your founder and, and operator experience. Then the question is, how do you demonstrate that's actually relevant to the fundamental skill sets and, you know, daily workflow of a VC? And then you have to be intentional about how you demonstrate that for folks. Yeah, thanks so much for, for sharing that, you know, high level overview on how founders and operators out there can think about transitioning to VC. Um, so, you know, when you first came back to Singapore, you were also in EF, right? And shortly after you transitioned into Mount Sioux as a VC. So what was that transition like, you know, um, what sort of, I guess, examples could you share with the audience around the stuff that you have mentioned just now? So that's an interesting piece where I had built two companies, right? And the first company I built in Singapore. And after that, I built a second company in Boston and New York. So what was interesting was that when I you kind of like moved back to Southeast Asia and Singapore, I think the first part that moved with me, of course, was my own operator empathy as a founder. Because I was very clear about, personally, I met great VCs, I met average VCs, and I met terrible VCs. Um, and I've met VCs that I disliked initially, but actually turned out to have given me great advice. And that, you know, over time, I kind of understood where they came from and became great VCs in my own eyes, right? So I think I had that empathy um, from a founder perspective about what it is like to fundraise. And so you know what kind of VC you want to be um, in terms of what not to do. You know, don't be late, don't be underprepared, um, don't kind of like jerk the person around and, you know, kind of drag it out, et cetera. So that's really kind of like a lot of the thinking that's there. So you actually kind of know what the job description is. That being said, um, one thing that did not move with me was my network, right? So I had built that network in Boston, New York. There were many great people who really liked me because I had been helping them. I gave them advice and um, helped them build businesses, either because we had dinner parties or because we had long walks and all these conversations. And actually uh, moving geographies meant that I actually, in many ways, that network was lost or compartmentalized away, right? And so I had to kind of like build from scratch and... Um, you know, simple fact is that in Southeast Asia, a lot of folks don't know me or have a very shallow understanding of who I am and what I've done. Um, and I actually still have very deep relationships with people in Boston because I help them, you know, when nobody would help them, right? In terms of like taking through the business or going through the term sheet with them or, you know, just eating sushi late at night. And just kind of like making a decision about, you know, how to negotiate fundraising, right? So those are things I already was doing as a founder, helping another founder because you know, I'm like senior to them by one year, you know, which is meaningless in the long grand scale, scale of things, but very relevant when you're like dealing with Tanshi for the first time, then, you know, we're kind of like the one-eyed man leading the blind in that sense, because I was blind one year previously. So, you know, that network, unfortunately, did not part of me. And so kind of like to start from scratch in the sense that, yeah, it's just hang out, you know, I'm not rushing things, right? But just meet people. Um, talk about things I really care about, things like that. Um, so that was the thing that did not part of me. One thing that, another thing that did part of me actually was, you know, for example, my domain expertise, right? Uh, so it would be in education tech, in software as a service, in B2B, 
So a lot of these go to market about how to run companies, how to fire people, all that domain expertise ported with me. And to some extent, actually, I actually got a masterclass of that in Boston, New York, right? So the level of thinking is very fast and advanced. Obviously, I had the benefit of half MBA, which also, also had a lot of entrepreneurship classes and professors that were world-class because they were previous founders and operators. So you know, I took that mindset, right, and had that training. And so I was able to port that back easily while also having to be actually be thoughtful about the localization requirements, right? So for example, like B2B SaaS is like night and day difference to some extent, like the fundamental routines and workflows are the same, but the customer is very different, right? In terms of GDP per capita, labor productivity, and therefore the intrinsic value of SaaS is just like an order of magnitude different from the US, right? Where, you know, there's a high cost of labor versus Southeast Asia, where there's low cost of labor, right? And so there's an interesting dynamic where you're like, okay, you know, um, a lot of it's relevant, but I have to reset and be thoughtful about what actually is, right? And so I think that is the three ways that I kind of like was able to transition, right? Two things I brought back was my founder empathy and my knowledge of what would make a good VC from a founder's perspective, as well as my domain expertise, which had to be localized. Uh, but the thing that did not pour off me was my network, right? Because of the geographic shift. Well, thanks for talking through your international expansion strategy from the US to Southeast Asia. Um, that was a you know, very interesting way to think about it, right? Like porting over your networks, but also thinking about how do you localize the domain expertise as well. Um, and I think that ties in very nicely, I think, to you know, the next two questions. So the second question is around this listener is thinking about whether he should focus on, you know, working with funds that mainly or only invest in areas like B2C gaming and consumer tech, which he is more familiar with, has both operator and founder experience in. So, you know, you have built two companies. What was the thought process for you like when you're thinking about what sort of fund to join? I think theoretically, the truth of the matter is that, yes, uh, focusing on the funds that have a very high correlation to your domain expertise will probably bear better fruit. Because from the fund's perspective, if they are, for example, very deep on B2C gaming, consumer tech, then obviously all of your domain expertise is going to be highly relevant. Your networks probably in P2C gaming, consumer tech will also be highly relevant. Uh, and, you know, your velocity, your inherent value, you know, maybe even your intrinsic passion and interest is aligned over the long term, right? So obviously the funds that are highly aligned with those things would be most interested in you as a person and candidate to hire. That being said, you know, some of these verticals, unfortunately, are maybe too narrow, right? Because there aren't that many funds. So many funds are, for example, geographic bound or maybe larger industry brown focused. And so I think there's some thoughtfulness that need to be said, which is like, yes, these are the ones that are highly relevant, but I also need to expand my search to funds that are more broader. And then my job is to say, how does this generalize to that fund, right? Even though it's a broader mandate. So for example... A classic one that I've seen, for example, would be folks who are very experienced in banking, right? And so they were building something in fintech as a startup or operator founder. And then they're interested in applying to a fund that does fintech and web tree, right? For example, so there's a common cluster. So then the conversation they're going to have is, well, you know, what they would probably go up to the fund and say is like, hey, I understand KYC, know your customer, I know anti-money laundering requirements, I understand the banks, I understand the banks as customers, 
I understand the requirements. I understand the reserve ratios. I understand the, you know, regulations that are there. And I also have some way of demonstration that this kit is generalizable to crypto. I already, for example, have been, you know, trading in various tokens. I've, you know, had a good portfolio. Um, so even though that was not my day job, I have, you know, some sustained interest. And so I can do both fintech and crypto, right? So that would be the translation argument that you make to the fund to say that your skill set is not just fintech, but also fintech and crypto, right? So that's something that, you know, some thoughtfulness is required. Um, and then at some level, of course, you know, if that translation is just way too much, like, you know, you're making a stretch, right? Like, oh, you know, I have experience, for example, in Southeast Asia and the US, and now I want to apply to a fund in Eastern Europe, right? Which is focusing on Eastern European stuff. And then you're like, isn't that like one jump too far, right? You know, like you can't generalize all that stuff, right? And then because from the fund's perspective, it's going to be like, well, do you want to live in Eastern Europe? Do you understand Eastern Europe? Do you have a network in Eastern Europe? And so, you know, I think that generalizability, that translation works to a certain extent, but at some level, you know, it's just like, how does, you know, product market fit, right? In the market for, is, is that, is the, does the market's problem line up with the product's solution? Similarly, is there, you know, employee dash employer fit, right? Does the problem that employer want to solve fit with the skill set that you have and the interest that you have actually, right? And so that alignment is kind of key and it takes two hands to clap, right? It takes the employer to obviously interview you and make a decision about whether you're going to be a long-term success at the fund, but also for yourself to be thoughtful about the funds that you're applying to and, you know, whether it's something that you're really going to succeed at in the long run. Yeah, so uh, I think there's also that other question, which is around the maturity of Southeast Asia as an ecosystem, right? Which is why you don't have like sector-specific funds in you know, gaming or even consumer tech which are, you know, you see more often in the US where the ecosystem is a lot more mature, a lot more deep in the talent and the companies that have been for, which also raises the question of like, you know, if you have both networks in the US and Southeast Asia, then it gives you the option to sort of like choose um, where you want to, you know, try and be a VC in um, and join a fund which is more closely aligned for interest. But then if you're not, then... If you don't have that network, maybe you're just like Southeast Asia focused and then you're trying to join a gaming fund in the US and how do you make that transition, right? I guess that's somewhat tied to the third question where the listener asks, you know, whether the MBA is necessary or even recommended to help make the transition into VC, like, you know, doing a pre-MBA internship at the early stage VC fund, either in Singapore or back um, home in Northern California for this listener to gain more first-hand experience. Do you think... You know, that VC internship is helpful. Do you think the MBA is helpful? I mean, you had the, the Harvard MBA experience, right? So how did that help in your VC career? Yeah, um, I, I think at the end of the day, in the long run to be a great investor, you have to, first of all, want to be an investor for the long run because of how long the time cycles are. So if you want to be a VC for two years or even four years, that's actually insufficient uh, time, if that makes sense, to for you to actually become a great investor. So I think another way of saying it is, um, you know, in consulting, right? It's like, you know, everybody wants to be an associate consultant, but then there's a very different conversation of saying, do you want to be a partner, right, at a top consulting firm? Because those are very different jobs, so they're different value propositions. Um, and the time horizon is very different. So I, I think to zoom out here, I think the first question is, 
do you actually want to be a VC, right? You know, like, do you even want to be in the industry of venture capital, right? Um, and so what I mean by that is, you know, don't let the tail wag the dog. You shouldn't do an MBA just to have a chance to do an internship at venture capital. It's almost the other way around, right? Which is, the what is the fastest way for you to get that internship at a venture capital fund to find out if you actually like venture capital? Um, that's the most important thing to do. And if you can do it ASAP because you can shadow someone for a day or a week, or if you ask someone to do it, or you already have that in at a tier two or tier three or even a tier one VC, then just do it as fast as you can because that timing for your, you know, is going to give you the space to make a decision about whether you actually like the space and whether you want to continue doing it for the long run, right? So that's going to be then more logical sequence because then, you know, after you do that, then you're like, okay, I want to double down on VC. So I'm going to join another VC fund or, you know, or I can do the MBA and so, so forth, right? But, you know, you may actually find out that you don't want to be a VC, in which case you still want to do your MBA to figure out what you want to do. And then you don't spend your time at MBA <laughs> trying to enter VC, right? You're burning two years of available time. So I think it's almost a sequencing. It's almost like, you know, like, I always tell people, like, don't presuppose the answer that you want to be a VC partner, right? Yeah, you know I mean, um, because it's such a lifelong career, right? You know, once you're in VC, you know, it just stacks and compounds for a long time. Versus, you know, if you want to be a founder, you can be a founder for, you know, 10 years, right? You know, or you can choose being an operator and executive for two to four years, and then you can transition again to being a founder or a VC after that. So there's a bit of a sequence that is kind of like non-obvious because most jobs, you know, when you're applying to consulting or banking or accounting, like, you know, it, there's an understanding you transition every two or four years, right? But I think there's a bit of a sequence that's really non-obvious for venture capital because of the time cycles involved with the investment. So what that means is, first of all, the most important thing to do is if you have not done in any time within a venture capital fund, the priority is to get that as fast as possible, regardless of MBA or whatever it is. Just do it, no matter geography or whatever it is, just do it so that you understand whether you want to do venture capital for long term. If no, very simple, go find another job that you actually like and you can either do MBA or join a company you like, right? But it turns out that you do like venture capital, then of course you have a second set of conversation, which is, is the MBA helpful for that, right? Um, I think this is quite debatable. Uh, I'll tell you what the pro case is. I think doing a half MBA or tier one MBA is helpful because it does help open up doors and a lot of the kind of like um, big VC funds actually kind of look at these um, credentials actually uh, as, you know, a form of entry, right? You know, or a common, you know, way to correlate to pre-screen talent that fits their profile. So um, it does help open doors to some funds. Um, and I think, obviously, if you're have, working at a tier one MBA, you again get access to great networks, great domain expertise, and great training, right? Around, for example, venture capital, entrepreneurship that will kind of like snowball over time. So it's not just a one-time ticket, but actually a compounding advantage over time. That being said, first of all, it is, you know, a quarter million dollars of, you know, investment and cost plus the foregone opportunity cost of one to two years of time where you could have been investing and so, so forth. So that's one way to look at it. And at the end of the day, the, if you know that you want to be a VC, then, you know, what could you spend, I don't know, 300 grand 
or 400 grand to do, right? Maybe you could build a world-class podcast, you know, for example, on venture capital and startups. Maybe you can, for example, do a Kaufman Fellowship instead, which is just an MBA, but 100% just focused on venture capital, right? They don't even do, you know, forget about all the other stuff, right? Because you're going to specialize in venture capital. Or are you going to spend it, you know, on yourself, your training or your own other opportunities or, you know, feed your family, right? You know, there's so many things you could use that opportunity cost for, right? If you're very clear that you want to do venture capital. And a lot of funds, and I'll say many funds that are great actually do not index at all on having MBA. So I, I know I did mention that some funds do index on using it as a way to screen for talent, but there are many great funds that are high performers that do not screen for this or do not require this at all. So what they're going to be looking for is people who are scrappy, entrepreneurial, demonstrated investment judgment, right? So, you know, if you, you know, I could make the argument that if you knew for certain that you wanted to be a VC for sure after your internship and you have the opportunity cost effectively of 400 grand, I could make the argument that actually making 40 investments of 10 grand each might actually put you in a better track record of history and opportunity, right? To demonstrate to VCs that you actually can pick well, source deals and add value, right? And I think having a portfolio of 40 angel investments will probably be a better training ground that's 100% relevant for the VC job than doing a generalist MBA. So in other words, in summary is definitely do the VC internship as soon as possible to figure out if you want to continue exploring VC as a career. If you know you want to be a VC, then do the MBA for its own intrinsic advantages of how it compounds over time. Or if you know that you want to be the best VC and you want to do it as soon as possible, just take the foregone cost and just you know build an angel portfolio that shows that you can actually do it really well, right? And you probably get much further along with many other funds uh, and make you way more attractive, honestly, in the medium term. So I think with that, we wrap up our first segment for the listener Q&A. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.